Hey y'all, this is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, what a new administration can do about white nationalism. All right, let's start the show. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So we have a new president, a new administration, a new owner of the POTUS Twitter account. And you know, it's a little hard to believe that we're here now when just two weeks ago we had an insurrection on the U.S. Capitol. Because of that siege and the pandemic, President Biden's inauguration was closed off to the public. You saw the images. It was eerie. The seat of our democracy. It was just plain locked down. Still, Joe Biden was sworn in without a hitch. And he was serenaded by Lady Gaga and J-Lo. But just because something didn't happen that day, it doesn't mean the threat we all saw on display during the Capitol insurrection goes away forever. The rise of political extremism, white supremacy, domestic terrorism that we must confront and we will defeat. There has been a recognition of what's been true for a long time is that far right groups, according to the FBI, are the deadliest and the most active domestic terror threat. That is Hannah Alam. She covers national security for NPR. And Hannah says these groups, right now anyway, since the Capitol siege, They've gone quiet. You know, they're lying low. If you ask them, they'll say, oh, we have longer term plans and things. But I mean, also, they are in kind of crisis mode right now. Really? You know, Trump was kind of the glue that was binding all these disparate groups together. And if he's removed from the picture or at least sidelined or not as powerful as before, Absolutely. So we'll see. And we're already seeing um, groups kind of fighting within their groups, fighting other groups. The big question right now is what happens next for these far right groups? How tough will law enforcement agencies be in tracking these groups down and stopping them? And for me, those questions, it all feels similar to some of the same questions we asked as a country after another attack. 9-11. After the Twin Towers fell, some facets of American life changed overnight and seemingly forever. So in 2021, as America finally begins to grapple with the domestic terror threat of far-right extremism, how much of that national security playbook from post-9-11 might we start to see now? Right. Well, I I covered the aftermath of 9-11 in the United States and abroad, and There have been some eerie similarities with, you know, I I just see we we went from kind of ignoring this far right threat or it was just kind of a, you know, something we do a story on every every now and then to now. Mm -hmm. uh, It's a focus of authorities. It's a focus of national attention. Uh, News outlets all over the country are adding beats and coverage uh, for this issue. And, you know, some of that's really important and, and overdue. But I do worry that we risk whipping up another hysteria. Yeah. Uh, you know, it, it's when I think about that era of it, of just increased surveillance of Muslims in America and some things that, you know, were not in line with the law, really. I can see a country like America doing that to a group like Muslims. But like, can that happen with white domestic terrorists? I've just have never seen a moment where 
U.S. law enforcement has cracked down on white people in that mm-hmm. way. And I think civil liberties advocates would say they shouldn't be cracking down on anybody that yeah. way, <laughs> you oh, know, yeah. in terms oh, yeah. of the excesses, you know, ignoring a problem and then, you know, sort of going full throttle <laughs> yeah. at it yeah. uh, in a way that, you know, are you taking the time to make the case? Are these cases airtight? Is there really probable cause? I mean, if you look back at some of the evidence in some of these cases where, you know, they were um, Islamist extremists, I mean, yeah, I covered some of those cases and I would see people uh, go to prison for long sentences for far less than, you know, barging into Nancy Pelosi's office and mm. taking things, you know. Yeah. Um, so, no, I mean, I've talked to a lot of experts who say there are plenty of laws on the books already for policing criminal behavior. Mm. And so maybe divorce it from that kind of terrorism label that is mm. flawed and subjective and police criminality, police criminal behavior. You know, and others say, no, it's really important to distinguish political violence from other forms of violence. It kind of tells us where we are as a country, how stable we are. I'm hearing all sorts of debates going on, especially when it comes to the idea of introducing some kind of domestic terrorism statute. So, you know, we have a terrorism statute for international groups like ISIS and Al Qaeda. Mm -hmm. We don't for domestic terrorist groups. And so, Mm. you know, that's been a disparity that, you know, that's made a lot of people angry or, or at least confused. You know, why can't we surveil and crack down on these groups the way that we do for groups that are, you know, for mm-hmm. suspects that are tied to, say, ISIS. And the answer is that we just, there's not the same tool set. So that's another thing I'll be looking at in this, in this new administration. Speaking of that, I mean, that perfect segue to my next question. What do we know so far about what the Biden administration is going to do to handle this rising threat of white nationalism and hard right extremism? Will there be big changes at agencies like the FBI or Homeland Security? We we're definitely waiting to see what he's going to do. Rhetoric on the rhetoric front. I mean, he's been pretty clear in you know calling this a priority. He named it in his inaugural address, so he doesn't have a problem naming it. And he has already you know tapped some veteran counterterrorism officials, specialists uh, for key national security roles, people who were involved in shaping and policymaking during the so-called war on terror era. So, you know, for some people, that's reassuring. But to others, uh, you know, especially civil liberties advocates, you know, that makes them nervous because, again, we Mm -hmm. saw in some cases some of those counterterrorism policies worsening conflicts or widening conflicts, stigmatizing ordinary Muslims and, you know, leaving a stain Mm -hmm. on the country's record of civil rights and civil liberties. Oh, yeah. Well, so much of this, that stuff in hindsight after 9-11 seemed like theater. I mean, I'm still like, I still don't really understand whether or not me taking off my shoes at the airport for years was actually worth anything. Right. And so I think the question is, after years of the optics of this airtight security and uh, America, the fortress, that made it just all the more shocking that a crowd of well, thousands yeah, could march. Yeah, inside the well, house. That the, yeah, that a crowd could march right up to the Capitol and walk on in. Yeah. Uh, what do we know about how some of these agencies will handle threats and rumors of infiltration from some of these domestic extremist groups? Yeah, I don't cover the agencies as much, but um, this has been an issue. I mean, I remember writing about a hearing where it was um, 
I remember from you know months ago, extremism experts saying we don't have enough data from the military and law enforcement about the extent of this problem. The military doesn't do a tattoo database where we could look for far right symbols. They weren't screening recruit social media, you know, things like that. Um, they had this strange distinction in the military where uh, you could be a member of a, I think, a hate group or an extremist group, but you couldn't be an active participant. And it's my mm. understanding that they've done away with that distinction now. But I mean, that was just up until, you know, in the past year. So I think the number one thing is data collection. Mm. Every lawmaker at that hearing said, well, what do we know? What are the numbers? How many cases? And there's just, you know, not much out there on that. Yeah. For Americans who maybe have just been waking up to this threat in the last few weeks after seeing that siege of the Capitol and are now taking this domestic hard right extremism a little more seriously. What do you think are some of the, or is the biggest misconception in the way that we're all collectively thinking about this threat right now? I don't know if there's a misconception, but I remember at the kind of height of the ISIS scare that you could look at the headlines and think that every Muslim in America was like going out and buying a plane ticket to Syria wow. to join ISIS wow. because there was such a hysteria over it. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we've gone from nobody knowing who the Proud Boys are to, you know, big in-depth features on yeah. this group that not too long ago tried to stage an event and just a, f- a couple dozen people showed up or yeah. something. So I do worry that we will get into that trap of building a boogeyman again. I think that gets into the kind of the fear mongering of the war on terror days. So I'm trying really hard to just kind of assess how scared should we be? How Mm. seriously should we take these groups um, Mm. and separate some of the, you know, the real uh, uh, sober threat assessment from the alarmism? Yeah, yeah. Last question for you. I promise you were at the Capitol the day it was attacked. You covered that thing. I'm sure that you're still processing that moment, but I'm wondering what part of your experience that day at the Capitol during the siege will stick with you the most? Hmm. I mean, I guess it's the moment when we saw these guys fighting over the breaking of a window Mm. and One guy wanted to break the window and get inside, and this other guy, Joe, from Ohio, was telling him, no, this is the people's house. Don't destroy property. And he was so mad, and he came over, and he saw my mic, and so he came up to me, and uh, he was complaining about this. You know, we didn't come to do this. We didn't come to destroy property. And so I asked him, well, looking around at all of this chaos going on, what do you want to come out of all this? And he you know, without missing a beat, said he wanted to see gallows set up on the lawn and to bring lawmakers out and see them hanging four by four by four for treason, is its exact words. And so to me, it was chilling that this man who would sit there and be upset over the breaking of a window was in the next breath fine with a mass execution of sitting lawmakers. And that was chilling. Like when you see someone that far gone and that fanatical, it's, you know, what I remember seeing in the crowds watching insurgent leaders speak in southern Iraq or in southern Lebanon or something, you know, that kind of fervor. Um, There's no reasoning with that. 
Thanks again to Hannah Alam. She covers national security for NPR. All right, listeners, stay with us. Coming up, I talk with comedian Amber Ruffin and her sister Lacey. We discuss a book they co-wrote together, a book all about racism. Don't worry, it's funny. Trust me. Support for NPR and the following message come from BetterHelp, offering online counseling. BetterHelp therapist Hesu Joe knows that lockdown has been hard on us as humans. We as people are hardwired to connect with others, which is why this whole time is so difficult. The connection that happens between people can be very powerful and how healing it can be to have a healthy relationship with someone. To get matched with a counselor within 48 hours and save 10%, go to BetterHelp.com minute. President Biden campaigned on uniting the country. He now takes office just weeks after a pro-Trump insurrection. The NPR Politics Podcast is there every day to break down the transition of power as Biden takes the reins in Washington. For this next segment, I'm going to interview two sisters. I'm Lacey Lamar. And I'm Lacey Lamar. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. I'm Love Amber it. Mildred Ruffinhead. You might know Amber Ruffin from her Peacock Late Night Sketch series. It's called The Amber Ruffin Show. And Lacey, she works in healthcare and human services in Omaha, Nebraska. These two sisters, they lead different lives and they live in different places, but they recently came together to write a book about a thing they both experience a lot, racism. We wrote a book called You'll Never Believe What Happened to Lacey, Crazy Stories About Racism, and it is a collection of unbelievable racist stories that have happened to my sister. So Lacey and Amber writing this book, it was kind of a no-brainer. In their family, they share stories of racism all the time. There's always just been this running joke in our family with friends. Every time something would happen to me, uh, you know, especially if it was racist, they would say, you need to put that in a book. And so every time it just it just grew and grew. And then one day Amber just came to me and said, I think we're going to do it. We should just write a book and do it. So these stories about racism in the book, they run the gamut. Some are hilarious. Some are absurd. Some are just sad. But mostly... They are hilarious. One of the stories in the book is I was at a luncheon for work. I was the only black person at the table. And one lady is sharing her story about how she had recently moved to Omaha from a much smaller town and that she was just scared of diversity. She said, diversity is scary. And I knew what she meant. And I said, what do you mean? Diversity is scary. And she just out and out said, well, you know, black people, they're, black people are scary. They're mean. She said that? She said, black people are mean to a black person. And I was the only black person at the table. And none of the white people were ever, you know, they weren't really upset or shook or anything. And at that exact moment, one of my girlfriends saw me from across the room, thought I was Amber, came running over and said, Amber. And she goes, oh, it's Lacey. She goes, are you finishing up your book? How's the book coming along? And I said, the book is going great. And she walks off and everyone at the table goes, you're writing a book? And I said, yeah, it's about stupid racist comments that I get all the time. And I just stared at the lady. <laughs> Heck yes. Yeah. Heck yes. Everyone should be threatening to write a book at all times. <laughs> like, yes, about racism, but also sexism. Look, if you're unhappy at your job and you um, face rude people every day, 
just let the word slip that you are writing a book. It truly, <laughs> it helps. Um, it changes things. I yeah. love it. <laughs> My favorite story from the book is when Lacey was buying uh, something and she had black history checks and each check had a different black history hero on it. So she wrote out her check and she handed it to the cashier and the cashier goes, oh my gosh, I didn't know you could get your picture on your checks. And the, the, the black history hero on this check was Harriet Tubman. The girl thought Lacey was Harriet Tubman. You know, like somehow Lacey took an old timey picture of herself <laughs> and then put it on a check with a scarf around her head. With a, she put a scarf around her head. And I do her. wrap my hair up. It wasn't wrapped that day, but you know. She, <laughs> she took the picture right That's as she woke up. Crazy. Or she took a wrap off her head and then That's put that picture on a check. Crazy. Yeah. So when you were pulling the stories together for the book, was it a situation where you just had too many stories and had to choose which ones to cut out? Absolutely. There were a bajillion stories. A bajillion And these are just the funny stories of Lacey's yeah. life that fit in this book. And, you know, Lacey is still young. There's still a <laughs> lot of life to... Well, okay, she's not that young. <laughs> Sam... Uh, <laughs> No, but she's still, you know, has a couple years left. I have a couple years years left. (laughs) Wow. Uh, But also, I am getting flooded. Got a few calls today. People are remembering things. And they're calling me. They're like, oh, my gosh, is this story in the book? Because I remember we were here. I don't even, I haven't even written uh, everything down that that has happened to me. And and we need to go back and say that's how we wrote uh, most of the book is I would keep journals of racist things that happened to me at work. Now, you know when wow. you are at your job and you are a minority or a woman, you, well, probably black when you're black, um, you <laughs> have to write down exactly what happens when someone talks crazy to you because when someone talks crazy to you, then they can realize what they've said is unacceptable and then kind of angrily apologize and then get angry at your um, not completely accepting a crazed apology. And then they go to HR talking about this person wow. is mean to me. Like that definitely mm-hmm. super happens. So that's one of the many reasons why anytime someone says something a little bit out of pocket, Lacey just goes ahead and writes it down. Yeah, I document everything. <laughs> So over the course of writing this book, remembering these stories, did either or both of you notice that you developed some coping mechanisms for all this, like a certain ritual for processing the microaggressions or just flat out aggressions when they happen, besides, you know, writing them down? Our, my coping mechanism, and I think it's Amber's too, is just straight humor. We all, when something happens to you 20, 30, 50 times, you just... It, it, it there is a funny element to it. Um, even if it's bad, you're like, I can't. Now, come on, this happened to me, you know, twenty times this month. This is it's it's a little overkill. So we do kind of uh, kind of laugh at it. My coping yeah. mechanism is drinking. <laughs> I, I drink about same it. Same girl, same. <laughs> if you could force a certain type of person to read this book, 
or a certain community to read this book all about the racism that you both have experienced and continue to experience, who would it be? And be specific. Like, don't just say all white people. Oh, man. I was going to say every white person on the face of the earth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, At least HR people. All HR people. Everyone who works in HR. Everyone in HR. Because this book isn't like a a through line one story. It's a bunch of little stories. But there is kind of a through line in that the evil person is HR. (laughs) My goodness. The HR stuff. (laughs) Tell me more about that. The call is coming from inside the house. The hardest story to me, and it's so long I'm not going to get into it, but when I was reprimanded like a five-year-old, for not greeting uh, the intern the right way for 41 minutes sitting in this room. Because that, to me, just happened yesterday. That's probably my most recent racist story. And I've gotten plenty of calls from the people that worked there because they know they heard about it. And then I basically was fired after that for speaking up about it. But (laughs) um, And it was so funny. I was in New York and told Amber... Yeah, when I go back home, I'm not going to have a job because I told everybody about themselves. And I came back home and that same day, I called Amber and go, yeah, I got fired. Wow. <laughs> I go, she did. I go, I saw it coming. <laughs> what do you think your experience with race would be if you lived in a place like New York? Like you're there right now with your sister. But if I'm, you lived in New York City, what do you think it would be like? I'm So I always use this example I'm in New York, I'm in a store, and I was with Amber, and I had this big old purse. Amber was teasing me, why are you carrying this big purse around? New Yorkers don't carry it. So I have this big purse, and I was afraid to put my hand in my purse too many times because, you know, you get caught by security. And I'm literally like, oh, and I remember I put my hand in, but I pulled it away because I was like, okay, I've already dug, dug in here, and I don't want anybody to think I'm putting things... And then I realized nobody cares. There are black people everywhere. <laughs> Nobody's looking at me. They don't care. And it was something freeing about that. I'm like, I can stop and just dig in here and take stuff out and do this and look over here and walk over here and grab this. And, you know, it's so funny. Like in Omaha, you're in a big department store. You don't grab something and then walk to another department. You grab it and you buy it right there and you put it in your bag. And you, I always hold my receipt outside of the mm-hmm. bag. Like, there, I'm like, there are people wow. walking freely in here with bags from different stores and backpacks and yeah. bags they've brought from home, and they're just shoving stuff in there. I was secure. I wanted to stop them. What are you doing over there? What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and then I was like, hold on. That's racist. You can't do it. Yeah. But, um, yeah. yeah, it's uh, a totally, totally different mindset. And I know that may sound weird to people, but when you are just living in a place of oppression for so long, it's like, I'm free. I want to ask you both, Lacey and Amber, to stick around and uh, play a game with me after a break. Is that cool? Okay, but only if we win. Okay, because I have to cheat. One of you will. Yay! (laughs) One of you will win. All right. Okay. This message comes from NPR sponsor CarMax. Finding the right car takes time. And with the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax, you can take your time to make sure you've found the perfect car for you, starting with a 24-hour test drive. Drive it to work, school, and the grocery store before you buy. And if it feels right, you've got a full month and 1,500 miles to keep on driving with their new 30-day money-back guarantee. Learn more about the new Love Your Car Guarantee from CarMax at CarMax.com. As soon as you wake up, you need the latest. That's why Up First is here. It's NPR's morning news podcast. In just 10 minutes or so, you can start your day informed. Listen to Up First on the NPR One app or wherever you get your podcasts.
Now we're going to pivot and play my favorite game. It is called Who Said That? Oh, no. Who said that? The game is really simple. I share three quotes from the week, and you got to guess who said it. Uh, this is not formal okay. at all. There are no buzzers. <laughs> Just yell the answer out. I'm a really okay. bad scorekeeper, so I'll probably forget who wins anyway. And there's no prize, so it's all good. Great. All righty. Here is the first quote. I was too innocent and too gay to deserve a pardon from Trump. Who said that? Oh, my God. Um... It was um, Joe Exotic, the Tiger King. Yes, it was. Yes, it was. So the Netflix star Joe Exotic, star of Netflix's Tiger King, he was rumored to possibly be getting a pardon from Trump this week in that last-minute pardon push, but he didn't get one. But he was so ready for the pardon, y'all, he had a stretch limo parked outside of his prison in Fort Worth, Texas. No! No! I heard that he was... He could have been pardoned. Yeah. He had a hair and wardrobe team on standby. Well, oh, no. That, and that was Lacey, by the way, who answered. Okay. Hey. So I should get the point. Was, Thank you. Hey. They don't know. They don't oh. know. Sister's helping sister. <laughs> so Lacey gets that point. Um, so he was sentenced last year, uh, Joe Exotic, to 22 years in federal prison for violating federal wildlife laws, which anyone who saw that show Tiger King would have known. He was mean to those tigers. Yeah. But he also took part in that mm-hmm. failed murder-for-hire plot targeting his rival, Carol Baskin, who runs a sanctuary for big cats. Yes. Did y'all... That <laughs> Carol Baskin. Leave her alone. That's what he called his words. No, oh, okay. I just love how the Joe Exotic plot line will never die. We'll be talking about Joe Exotic three presidents from now. Yeah, we will. Maybe he'll be pardoned. <laughs> <laughs> okay, this next one is fill in the blank. A life-size cardboard cutout of blank from inside Ben Affleck's residence was seen being thrown out into a trash can. Hmm. I'm gonna say Trump? I don't know. No, this was a big breakup of the week. Oh. I Who think was it was dating? Anna de Armas. Yes, yes. That young lady? We'll give I it to Amber. Who, oh. Oh, thank you. I'll give that point to Amber. You're not in charge of the points, by the way. Can I just point that out? No one's in charge of the points. I don't know no points. What? Sam, Everyone's a are... winner. What? I, I love you, Sam. No, I love Sam, you so much. You're there. Um, no, but his girlfriend he broke up with. Yeah, so folks probably got to know Anna DeArmas from her role in Knives Out. Uh, and they've been dating very publicly. Like, you, you would see them every day take a walk to Dunkin' Donuts to get Dunkin' together. It was very much a performance for the paparazzi. And then all of a sudden they broke up, and they didn't just break up. Uh, there were these photos this week of a life-size cardboard cutout of Anna Diarmas being thrown out of Ben Affleck's house. If that don't say we're done, I don't know what does. Mm, I'm going to send him a, a cutout of me. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> he needs a new one. I mean, I will say their couple name was Banana, like Ben Anna. Oh, get it? that and was so their that's a good name. name. They, I feel like they should get back because that's a great name. You're never gonna find no, another Banana. Here's why? Because their breakup name is Banana Split. <gasps> oh, <gasps> you are so right. Yeah, they can't get back together. Yeah, we quickly they can't would get like back. to change our minds. <laughs> And say they can never. They can never it's gotta get be back banana together. split. Oh, banana split never, forever. Ever. It's wonderful. Uh, 
last quote. The quote is, let's get loud. Who said that? Jennifer, Jennifer Lopez. Lopez. Jennifer Lopez, a.k.a. J-Lo, a.k.a. Jenny from the Block, a.k.a. What Are You Doing, Jennifer Lopez? <laughs> what did y'all make of that moment? She's up there singing. What song was she singing? America something. First yeah. of all, <laughs> her um, choice of song was This Land Is Your mm. Land, yes, which is like it the itsy bitsy spider. Why would you <laughs> well, choose that? That's a song you learned in third grade. That's the kind of vocal she can accommodate. Ooh. Okay. I didn't say that in case Jenny's listening. Cut that in post. (laughs) (laughs) She's up there singing a medley of This Land Is Your Land and America the Beautiful. And like halfway through it, the chords change and then she kind of belts out. Which is a line from one of her more iconic songs, and everyone was just mm-hmm. scratching their head. Was it cool? Was it kosher? I thought it was a little uh, tacky. I thought it was fantastic. I did not care for it at all. I loved it. But oh, Amber... Debate this, debate this. This Go is ahead. Lacey. This is Lacey speaking. Uh, I didn't love it. They can tell it's Lacey speaking <laughs> because what your, your opinion is bad. Um, <laughs> it ooh, was fantastic. Now's the time, but also like... Didn't she right after or right before that say something in Spanish? She did. So and I did we do not that. know. We don't know. So what we do she not said. have the full story. Okay. Who knows I what mean, she we said? We could find out the full story. Is it impossible to find out? <laughs> we'll never know. I'll never know. <laughs> she, you know, it was a way to say, "This is ours. These songs about America are about all of us." Yes. And I am. Listen, I just that. had glee. Knowing that a lot of people were not happy that they saw her brown, beautiful face up there. That's all I really cared about. She could have got up there and did a dance and clap and, you know. She should have. She let them know, we are here. Mm -hmm. Yeah, (laughs) I like that. So I I didn't mind it. Also, one thing that we'll never know is who won this game. Uh, My colleagues are going back and forth in Slack right now trying to count the points. It was Lacey Lamar. Amber Mildred Ruffin. Lacey Lamar. I think it was Sam. (laughs) So my editor and my producer are saying that Lacey won the first point, but it was actually Amber because Lacey was lying. You sold me out after all I've been through in Omaha, Nebraska? You can't let me have this small victory? Oh, no. Here comes a pox upon your family. Okay. No, we don't wish poxes anymore. This is a plague. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. Hey, you can wish a pox. It's still allowed. I will say... Because I can't figure out what's up from down with the scoring system this week, we are going to give this week's win for Who Said That to Jennifer Lopez. Yeah, Congrats, okay. J-Lo. Right. We salute you. I love that they busted me out. <laughs> <laughs> My producers are actually saying They're you're a calling big liar. They're lazy liar. Yeah. <laughs> oh, my goodness. <laughs> I love it. Well, at some point soon, for the next book or even before, we'll have you both back on to play Who Said That again because this was Yay. just delightful. Yay. Amber, thank y'all so much. Yay, thanks. Yay, thank you. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi Sam, this is Caitlin from Chicago. 
A few weeks ago, I asked my friend if she wanted to pick up coffee and go for a walk in the park on a Sunday morning. It's become a weekly ritual and is one of the best parts of my week. Hey Sam, this is Harini. And my favorite moment of the week is sending both my kids back to school today after eight long months of online schooling. Hi Sam, this is Andrew from Michigan. My daughter is about 16 months old, and since she's grown up in a pandemic where we lost her daycare, we're especially close. After almost a year and a half of me hugging her, this week, for the first time, she put her arms around my neck and squeezed. It's the best hug I've ever gotten. Hey Sam, just getting off work from the neighborhood restaurant and bar that I own in East Point, Georgia. Um, It's been really, really tough on me and my staff and my wife. And the best thing that happened to us this week is that we got approved for the second round PPP loan. So it looks like we're going to make it through this. And the only thing I can think about is how amazing it's going to be to see that bar filled back up with the regulars I haven't seen in forever having a good time and how I'm going to cry my eyes out. (sighs) Thanks so much for what you do. Keep up the good work. Thank you for all that you do. I love listening to your podcast. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there, Nick, Andrew, Harini, and Caitlin. And uh, I got to share briefly the best part of my week. My Aunt Betty, beloved Aunt Betty, she uh, got her first dose of the COVID vaccine. And we are also grateful. Listeners, don't forget, you can send your best things to us at any point throughout any week. Just record yourself on your phone and then send that voice memo to me via email. Email samsanders at npr.org, samsanders at npr.org. All right, this week, It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, and Andrea Gutierrez. Our intern is Liam McBain. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman. Our director of programming is Steve Nelson. Our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. Listeners, till next time, stay safe, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders, and we'll talk soon.